The passage for today is Leviticus 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uzziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron, and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointed oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. And when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Did anyone see the news about Leviticus this past week? This magnificent, albeit obscure book of the Bible made headlines all around the world. Let me just get a show of hands. Raise your hand high if you read the news about Leviticus. Okay, not everyone at once. That's okay. One, all one of you. All right. Well, let me tell you about it then. It's not an over-exaggeration that this was one of the most important months in the history of Leviticus manuscript discoveries, and a huge month for Bible manuscripts in general. An ancient Hebrew scroll that was burned in a fire hundreds of years ago and was thought to be unreadable recently became readable through a high-tech process called virtual unwrapping. This particular manuscript was discovered in the Jewish community En Gedi in 1970. The parchment was almost completely burned and crushed. It had turned into chunks of charcoal that would further disintegrate if you tried to touch it. The scroll goes back to at least the 4th century after Christ, maybe earlier. And what book does it contain? The first chapters of Leviticus. And get this, it's the oldest copy of any part of the Pentateuch ever discovered. One scholar said, since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is the most extensive and significant biblical text from antiquity that has come to light. He also went on to say that the words found in that ancient Leviticus scroll are the same Hebrew words that we have today. If you didn't already know, the Bible is by far the most attested book in all of ancient history. 
We have thousands of Bible fragments throughout the centuries containing the biblical text or parts of it. We can be confident that God, our all-powerful, almighty God, has preserved his word through time. I mean, amazing. Our book of Leviticus in the news. I feel like a proud father who's seen his child succeed. I love Leviticus, and I hope you do too. I hope as we've been walking through the chapters in this book, you have a new, deep, and profound love for Leviticus. If you're new to us, and this is your first week here, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor at Redeemer. And for the past five weeks, we've been doing just that. We've been walking through chapter by chapter through the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. Maybe in the past, you skipped over Leviticus in your Bible reading and a plan initiatives. Maybe you fell asleep trying to make your way through. Or you just gave up because you couldn't understand it. Well, for those who've been with us for the past month, we've seen some incredible treasures in the book, haven't we? It's been a delight to study it together. We've looked at the initial five sacrifices or offerings, and we've seen how each of those offerings ultimately point us to the final offering or the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who ended all those sacrifices. That's why we don't sacrifice animals here together on Fridays. It's not just because it would be gross or bloody or expensive. We don't need to do it. It would be fruitless because Jesus has died once for all. He has paid it all. But we've also learned how the heart of the sacrifices speak to us today. The grain offering showed us that we're to give our best time, talent, and treasure to God. The fellowship offering, we learned that the greatest treasure in the whole wide world is peace with God. Now that the sacrifices have been laid out for us in chapters 1 through 7, we need priests to administrate them. That's what chapters 8 through 10 are all about. The ordination and the beginning of the priesthood. And here's the main point today. I have just one. We all need a mediator between us and God. And while priests will fail us, Jesus is the true and greater priest. I'll say that again. We all need a mediator. Every last one of us need a mediator between us and God. And priests, pastors, elders, church leaders, every human will fail us. But Jesus is the true and greater high priest. Let's look at the text. Let's start in chapter 8. I'll read verses 1 down through 10. And we'll see the ordination process for the priest laid out here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. 
He put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. As we read through those initial verses, the first thing we notice is that this was quite an extensive ordination process. It's interesting that there's actually no Hebrew word for ordain. Now to us in English, to ordain means to be set apart for ministry. But that precise idea isn't found in Hebrew. When we translate the Hebrew phrase, it literally means to fill the hands. Some churches still use this image. In some church ordinations, they include a ritual where the priest would actually stand up front and would hold out his hands. And those during doing the ordination ceremony, what they would do is they would put the word of God in his hands. They would put the Bible in the priest's Hands, because it is the tool for ministry. That's what a priest does, right? He holds out God's word to God's people. Well, we see a few other images in the ordination process. The washing with water. That was a reminder that they were to be continually washed clean by the word of God. The elaborate clothing pointed to the weighty and serious role of the priest. It pointed to the seriousness and the gravity of the priest approaching God's presence. And then they were set apart for the task by the anointing of oil. Well, the priests then offered sacrifices for themselves and went through one last ritual. Look down at verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. This is kind of weird. Takes the blood from the offering and puts it just three places. On the tip of the right ear, on the thumb of the right hand. And of course, how could you forget the big toe of the right foot? Those three parts of the body are smeared with blood. The right-hand side was considered the more important and favored side. But why were these three body parts chosen for this purification ritual? Well, it's because they are an example of a part that represents the whole. Think about the symbolism. The ears, the priest's ears must always be ready to hear God's voice. The hands must always be ready to serve God faithfully. And the feet symbolize the priest walking in the ways of the Lord. Now, it was a visual reminder to the priests, to everyone else, that their whole lives were consecrated to God. This was an elaborate process. It wasn't a quick ordination Putting priests into their positions wasn't something to take lightly. And in similar ways, we at Redeemer shouldn't take lightly this process either. 
We should take seriously the installation of our leaders. Now, in New Testament times, in this day and age, our elders are not mediators between us and God because we believe Jesus Christ is the one mediator, the only mediator between us and God Almighty. But the pastors and elders are servants of Jesus who are set apart or consecrated to lead God's people. We want to take the ordaining of elders seriously. The way we do it at Redeemer is we bring up elder candidates to the members two to four months before we actually take a vote. So back in May, we brought up Alvin Latonawa, Daniel Mwendu, and Chris Lejeune for the members to consider. We take time to hear feedback and concerns and encouragement. And at the same time, the candidates have an opportunity during those months to assess their own heart, to look at their own character, to look at their marriage and family and see if they're living holy lives, to see if their lives and character match up to what the Bible says elders need to be like. And this is all only after the current elders have spent months and often even years examining candidates. We look at the qualifications laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. We do our best to discern and look for noble character in these men. Do they match up with the character qualifications in Timothy and Titus? And you have, if you haven't read through those qualifications, take some time later on today, maybe in your devotional time or when you have some downtime in the afternoon and read through those qualifications and see what God's standard is for leadership in the church. It's unfortunate that many gifted men can't be elders for a number of reasons. Maybe they love money so much and all they care about is making more and more and more money. Some are not one women men. They struggle regularly and continually with pornography and aren't pursuing their wife. Some aren't sober minded and self-controlled. They're given to anger. They can't disagree with someone or they're going to just let them have it. They lose their temper easily. Elder candidates often look good on the outside, but their hearts are often far from God. This is one of the hardest things to discern. It takes time, and so we at Redeemer go slowly. We also need men who have a good grasp of the Bible. Men who know God's word. Men who love God's word. Men who agree with our statement of faith. We need men who love our church. Men who have time to commit to long elder meetings and shepherding commitments. First Timothy also tells us that to be an elder, a man has to be able to teach. This doesn't necessarily mean to preach, but they must be able to study God's word for themselves and then to communicate God's word and to hold it out to others. Elders are also men who manage their household well, who lead their family with grace. And they must have a good rapport with the elders, with the members, but also to outsiders. Do they have a good reputation outside of the church? Our practice as elders is to spend the last portion of each of our elder meetings talking about potential elder candidates, discussing them, praying for them. We brought up Alvin, Chris, and Daniel to the members after much waiting, after much prayer on our part. Along the way, we speak into their lives and we share areas that we want them to grow in. And by God's grace, these three men have responded well. But I do, I do want to say this before we keep moving down through the text. I want to speak to you men in the congregation. Aspire to be an elder. 
Every last one of you aspire to be an elder. Now, it may not be this year. It may not be this church. But put yourself in a position to be one. Look at those characteristics in Timothy and Titus and strive to follow them. I mean, the characteristics there really are characteristics that all men should fight for and grow in anyway. The only characteristic there that distinguishes just a godly man and an elder is to be able to teach. And I would encourage you to even strive for that, to study God's word, to grow, to learn, to read good books. Men of Redeemer aspire to be an elder. This is one of our greatest prayers at Redeemer, specifically for more lay elders. That word lay is short for laymen. It means those who are not in the regular pay of the church. We want a host of lay elders to join our team. So friends, pray to that end. And men aspire, aspire to that office. We take this very seriously. We go slowly. We go prayerfully. We do that because God takes it seriously. In Leviticus, after that long preparation process we've already talked about, the ordination ceremony itself, so after the preparation is all the way done, now that ceremony takes place, and even that takes seven days. It's not one short event. It takes time. Look at verse 33 and following. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. God takes it so seriously. He says, follow these rules or lose your life. Those priests would remain behind that front veil of the tabernacle for seven days. God's working on their hearts. God's preparing them for the ministry. And now they're ready to begin. The beginning of any ministry is a wonderful experience. I think back to almost seven years ago when Redeemer Church of Dubai was started. We celebrated because we reflected on the fact that God had to work together a thousand things to bring that into place. Funds had to be raised. Trainings had to be done. Seminary degrees were earned. There was little details that were really big things like finding a venue, like hiring staff, equipping leaders, building partnerships. So many things had to come together so that on February 12, 2010, Redeemer Church of Dubai was launched in the middle of Dira. Here in Leviticus, everything's ready. Years of slavery, and God had delivered his people. Plagues on the Egyptians, parting of the Red Sea. People of God were on their way. They get to Sinai, they get the law, they get instructions on how to build a tabernacle. Now the sacrifices have been explained, and priests have been ordained. They're ready to go. Years of preparation find their fulfillment in Leviticus chapter 9. Wonderful, isn't it? 
so much build up, so much anticipation, and now it's day one of a new era. And they're doing well. In your community groups this past week, you might have walked through all of these chapters, maybe even read them together. You might have noticed in chapters 8 and 9 a similar refrain that happens over and over and over again. They did as the Lord had commanded. As the Lord had commanded. As the Lord had commanded. They did all that the Lord commanded them to do. It was perfect obedience. Aaron even followed God's rather interesting command in chapter 9 verse 2. Look at that verse. Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. What animal does Moses have Aaron offer up as his first sacrifice as a priest? A calf. Does that remind you of anything? Well, sure, the incident with the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. Remember, Moses is up there on the mount. He's meeting God. He's getting the law. But Aaron and the people down below, they were getting restless. They're like, God, we can't trust you. We can come up with better ways than you. And so we fashioned this golden calf. And they started worshiping this false god. Bible scholar Gordon Wenham thinks that Aaron is offering a calf to atone for the sin of the golden calf. And then the ram, as a second offering, would have recalled the sacrifice in Genesis 22, when the ram was caught in the thicket and provided Isaac as a substitute. Making these the first sacrifices was a clear reminder of Aaron's sinfulness and his need for a substitute. The priest needed to know, hey, We need forgiveness too. If we're going to serve, we need to be pure. We need help. Well, then Aaron offered up the burnt and the grain and the peace offerings for the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all. And the text says the sacrifices were consumed by fire instantly. Look at chapter 9, verse 24. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The people shouted. This was a loud cry of joy. And they fell to the ground in acknowledging God's greatness and his glory. This was an awe-inspiring kind of day. God was with them. God was there. God was making himself known in their presence. He was pleased with them. God was with them. What a comforting truth to understand and to grasp. We may not have a physical tabernacle today. We certainly don't have a temple But did you know that the Bible says if you're a follower of Christ, you are the temple? 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
It would take a million years to comprehend this. And even then we wouldn't be done. But friend, if you're a Christian, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. We're the temple. This is how we can meet in this hotel now because it doesn't really matter where we meet. You don't go to a physical location to get close to the presence of God. Christ is in us. 1 Peter says we are a royal priesthood. Every one of us has access to God. Because Christ died for us and lives in us. Friend, let that melt your heart today. God is with you, literally. I don't know what you're going through today. Each of us has our own story. Each of us has our own last week that we had to live. Some more triumphant than others. Many of us suffering. Many of us struggling. I want you to know that when the believer, when you feel alone, you're not alone. When you're anxious, you have someone to cast your anxiety on. When you're in despair, there's one who knows your pain. When you're hurting, he gets it. When you don't know what to do, he'll give you direction. When you grieve, he grieves. God is with us. This has profound implications for the way we live our lives. There's no better news than knowing that God is with us, that he has accepted us, that he's comforting us. It's incredibly encouraging. That's why the people there in our passage, they shout for joy. It's a good fire. That fire symbolized God's very presence among them. And they fell to the ground in awe of God. It was a great day. But there was a problem. Chapter 9 always has a chapter 10. Chapter 8, we've had the priest's ordination. Chapter 9, we've had the very beginning of the ministry of the priests. But then we have chapter 10. I really wish there was no chapter 10, but it could all just end here in chapter 9. As we're reading through Leviticus, at first we're excited because it's here in chapter 10 that we have the most full and dramatic narrative in the whole book. If you're sleeping through chapters 1 through 9, you certainly wake up here. I mean, at last, a story, some action, no more sacrifices, no more descriptions of clothing. But then pretty quickly, a couple of priests are dead. you're thinking, oh my, what's going on here? The shouts of joy are silenced. Chapter 10, verse 19 seems to imply that this incident happened on the very same day as chapter 9. All was good. The priests did what God had commanded. The people shouted for joy. They fell on their faces in worship. And then chapter 10, verse 1 reads. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, 
Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. There's nothing funny about this text. Two young priests die. Two sons die. Two brothers perish. Why? We don't know exactly, but we know that they failed to obey God. They did what God had not commanded them to. God had prescribed how he was to be worshipped. These brothers disobeyed. What was the unauthorized fire? Some think they tried to barge into the most holy place, the throne room of God, the holy of holies that only the high priest would enter in on the day of atonement. If barging into the throne room of an earthly king was uninvited and a sign of disrespect and could lead to death in these times, imagine this. This was absolutely blasphemous if that's what they did. Maybe they were drunk. Perhaps they didn't follow instructions. Or both. The exact nature of their sin isn't the point. What mattered is that they were doing what God had commanded them not to do in worship. There's no room for innovation in worship. Where scripture clearly prescribes what should be done or directly prohibits what shouldn't be done, there's no room for alteration. We don't offer strange fire in our Bible teachings. We don't distort the gospel. We don't change the gospel message. The gospel is God's message to us. We have no right as his people to change it, to add to it, to subtract from it, to twist it, or use it for our own means and purposes. We stand true on the message that God is holy, that man has sinned and deserved death and judgment, and yet there's good news that Christ, God in the flesh, has come to save us. This is also why we're very careful here at Redeemer with, our thing, with things like our corporate worship gatherings. We prescribe to something called the regulative principle to drive what we do in corporate worship. The regulative principle is that we do in our worship gatherings what we see Christians commanded to do and are doing in the New Testament. This would include things like singing God's word, reading God's word, praying through God's word, preaching God's word, And taking part in the two ordinances of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. We don't innovate and come up with something better than what God has ordained to take place. We don't change worship corporately. We also don't change worship personally. All of our lives are to be an offering to God in worship. So we pray and we meditate on scripture. And we follow God's ways on how to live. Romans 12, our whole lives are to be worship to the Lord. And so we follow God's commands. One way we worship is is we're obedient to God. If we truly love God, we'll follow his ways. And so when the Bible says things like not to have sex before marriage, we say, yes, God, I want purity in my own heart. I want to hate my sin. Change my heart to love your word. When the Bible says we can't have unethical business dealings with money, we don't say, well, there's an exception here in Dubai because everybody's doing it. 
No, we say, yes, God, I'll follow your ways, not the world's ways. I want to love this truth and hate lies. So change my heart to love your word. In Leviticus 10, the Lord guards his honor by sending another fire. This one was terrifying. It showed that the Lord is holy. God is to be revered, not mocked. And God kills them. God takes his instructions for worship very seriously. And this is disheartening. Part of us wants to shout out, God, this isn't fair. This isn't fair that you just kill them. This is too harsh. Maybe you're thinking, maybe this is first time for you in a Christian worship gathering and you're already thinking in your own mind, Pastor, this God is too harsh. Maybe you've wondered the question, how can a God do this to good people? I don't like to see things happen like this to people. Well, friend, I don't like it either. I agree with you 100%. I never want to see God's wrath come upon another person. Unfortunately, the fire here in Leviticus 10 reminds us of a greater fire. The truth is both heaven and hell are real places and people actually go there. I've often heard it said, I'm not going to believe the Bible because I can't believe a good God would send good people to an an eternal fire like that. For a long time, I also wrestled with how a God could send good people to hell. But I realized that I was asking the wrong question. Asking a question like that starts with the assumption that we could actually be blameless and good before God. But in reality, none of us can. And all of us deserve the eternal fire. The wages of our sin is death and judgment. None of us can point the finger at Nadab and Abihu and say, Ah, those guys are pretty terrible. I'm glad I'm nothing like them. No, if we're anyone in the story, we're certainly not Moses. We're not Aaron. We're not even Eleazar and Ithamar. If we're anyone in the story, we're Nadab and Abihu. They're mere images of ourselves. The right question that we should be asking is this. God, why did you save me? Why did you spare me from that fire? The right question isn't, God, why would you send anyone to the fire? But God, why didn't I get the fire? God, I deserve it. I deserve your wrath. I deserve death. I deserve judgment. I deserved it. Why did you save me? Nadab and Abihu got exactly what they deserved. And fellow Christian, if you follow Jesus because of Jesus, you don't get what you deserve. It's the good news that with Jesus, we don't get what we deserve. You don't because Jesus took your punishment for you when he marched to the cross. He took all of God's wrath. He took all of God's justice. He took all of your sin. He took all of your evil. He took all of your wickedness. Jesus got the punishment you deserved so that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God. Nadab and Abihu just got what they deserved. They messed with God's glory like we all do. 
The great reformer John Calvin once said, If we reflect how holy a thing God's worship is, the enormity of the punishment will by no means offend us. If we truly comprehend the greatness and the glory and the majesty and the perfection and the holiness of God, we would stand on God's side against our sin and we would agree with the punishment. And as leaders of the tabernacle, the sin had to be punished or who knows what the people would have done. Perhaps followed in the same sin. God is concerned with his glory. And for our sake, he should be. As the God of the universe, the greatest good for all of us is that his glory shine forth in its fullest expression. That's why he took these three men out. Verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And to that, Aaron held his peace. They were near God, but mocked him, did not show him to be glorious, sanctified, holy. God cares so much about his glory that the very next thing he says in the chapter is, hey, oh, by the way, Aaron and sons, you can't even mourn the death. This would have been unimaginable. A father not able to mourn his son's death. The brothers not able to mourn their brother's death. But this was important. If normal mourning took place in public for those whom God had judged, people might get the wrong idea and think that those priests are taking the side of their deceased brothers and not the side of God against their deceased brothers. They're also told not to drink alcohol. That's a strange ban. It may have been because mourners would drink to cheer themselves up or because alcohol would numb their senses and God wants them to be sober, wants them to understand fully the gravity of what's taking place. Or maybe because Nadab and Abihu were drunk when the sin committed. We don't know. But what we do know is that sin is serious. Sin isn't something we laugh at. There are grave consequences to our sin. There are grave consequences to our unrepentant sin. I know in a room this size with this many people in it, there are some of you who are involved in unrepentant sin. For those of you who are Christians, you are a royal priesthood. You have direct access to God. Christ is in you. As a priest, your sin has great consequences. If you're here this morning and you have some kind of unrepentant sin that you haven't confessed, that you haven't dealt, dealt with, that's in secret, repent. Confess your sin and repent. None of us knows if we'll be given another day of life on this earth. We don't know what tomorrow holds for us. Repent. Every day that Jesus tarries in coming back to us is a day of grace for you to turn back to God. I was so discouraged this past week because I received news that a friend from 20 years ago, actually more than 20 years ago, in our university student ministry had been living a secret life. For 18 years of marriage, 
this man committed multiple and consistent adulterous affairs on his wife. His wife knew nothing about it. His closest friends knew nothing about it. He was caught and it all came out and devastated so many of us. In the last two years, two of the very closest people to me in my life were caught living a double life and in unrepentant sin. It was heartbreaking. Sin separates us from God and wreaks havoc on our own hearts and on all those around us. Friend, I want to plead with you this morning. I know I'm speaking to several of you, so if you think I'm speaking directly to you, I am. Friend, repent. If you have some secret sin that you're holding on to, repent before it's too late. When we read passages like this, they're not funny. They're meant to shock us. I mean, these two men in an instant were consumed by God. Friend, if you are in some unrepentant sin, the most loving and gracious thing I can do for you today is to call you and to urge you and to plead with you, please repent. Turn from it. Let your sin come out in the open. That's how you kill sin. If we keep it hidden into the recesses of our hearts, it just keeps growing and festering. The way we kill sin is we bring it out into the open. And I don't know what it is for you. It could be any number of things. Maybe you've hit your spouse. You've physically abused your husband or wife or your kids. Maybe it's some sexual sin. You've had sex or are having sex before you are married or now married. You're having intimate relations with someone who's not your spouse. Maybe you've cheated people out of money. Maybe there are business deals here in the UAE where you have taken what's not yours. You've gambled your family's money away. Maybe you've cheated at university or school. Or you've lied. Maybe you're a child or a teenager and you've lied to your parents. Maybe you've lied to your youth leaders, to Jason and Corsair and Johan or one of the other leaders, and you've not told the truth about how you're living. You've kept something secret from God and from them. I don't know what it is, but know that sin separates us from God. We all need Jesus, me and all of us. Give up running from him. As John Owen has said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Get your sin out in the open. Come talk to one of the elders. I'd love to talk with you. Come talk to the person who brought you here today. Come talk to your community group leader. Talk to the person sitting next to you. Just talk to somebody. Get it out. Let's start killing it. Let's start taking care of it before it's too late. All of us need help. And the problem is, your ultimate help can't be found in a person. Remember the question that all of Leviticus tries to answer for us? It's that, how can sinful men and sinful women live in the presence of God? How can God be in the presence of sinful men and sinful women? Or pretty quickly, we see that we can't rely on the priesthood. 
We get this great priesthood in chapter 9, and what happens on day 1? Failure. The problem with priests is, is that they're sinners too. All of us have offended God. No human can be our perfect priest or mediator before God. Our sin has so offended God that all of us deserve Nadab and Abihu's fate. And their sin just followed the pattern of our first mother and father, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God. And there in the garden, they rejected God. They wrote their own rules, their own laws. They rebelled against God. They were judged by God and put outside the garden. Nadab and Abihu rejected God in his ways. They were struck down. When Adam and Eve failed, we needed a new Adam. When Nadab and Abihu failed, we needed a new and better priest. Romans tells us that Jesus is the far superior Adam. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the far and better priest than Aaron. Aaron entered the tabernacle to intercede for us, but Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven interceding for us now. This is why we don't need to offer sacrifices. The priest offered sacrifices each and every day, but Christ has entered heaven because he has made the final sacrifice. The sacrifice that has ended it all. The blood of Jesus was shed once for all. And so friend, if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, there's no other hope in the world except to come to him. To repent of your sin, to raise your hand and say, I am not worthy, I am not worthy, I am not worthy. I need you to save me from my sin. And he will. Do it today in repentance and faith. Because we all need a mediator between us and God. And while priests will fail us, Jesus is the true and greater priest. Go to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. He is the great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for us. We thank you for this Savior who has purchased us by his blood. Oh, Father, thank you. We pray that we as a church would never forget this. We pray that as a church, this would melt our hearts and stir our affections. We have a great high priest whose name is love. We pray this. In the precious name of Christ, amen.